Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing Deobandism, the global Muslim reform movement that spread from India, then Pakistan, to the wider world. For many people, the first time they heard the word Deobandi was when it was associated with the rise of the Taliban movement in Afghanistan. But by tracing the complex history of the Deoband movement from its origins in India in 1866 to the present day, we'll see a much more complicated story. And we'll see how the Taliban in many ways represented a splinter movement that misrepresents the broader Deobandi tradition of political quietism. Because Deobandism has been largely traditionalist rather than revolutionary in character. From its origins, the Deobandi movement called Muslims for return to piety and tried to give them guidance in how to live a moral life in a corrupt world, and increasingly a world in which countries were no longer ruled by Muslims, especially in colonial India, where Deobandism developed. We'll see that at the centre of Deobandism was an attempt to increase and promote the role of the ulama, the traditional clerical class among Muslims, and to promote their continued importance as guides, guides to how to live a good life. But we'll also see, paradoxically, how the Deoband movement's attempt to promote and maintain the status of the traditional clerics was undermined by its own success. Because by the 1920s, a number of Deobandis founded the Muslim missionary movement, the Tablik al-Jama'at, which was led not by ulama, but by ordinary lay members. Over the next 45 minutes, we'll be asking what is Deobandism and exploring how it differs from other versions of Islam. We'll be going back to the origins of the movement and asking how, where and when Deobandism emerged and how that Indian colonial context shaped its subsequent doctrines. We'll be following Deobandi teachers as they spread beyond India and Pakistan to South Africa and ultimately to the wider world, including Afghanistan, but also the Western world. And then finally we'll be tackling that difficult question of the relationship between Deobandism and the Taliban movement in Afghanistan, then Pakistan. Helping me understand the complex history of Deobandism is Brannan Ingram an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Northwestern University. Professor Ingram is the author of the book Revival from Below, The Deoband Movement and Global Islam, which is published by the University of California Press in 2018. Hello, Brannon. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about Deobandism, which we might define as a, a theological or legal orientation in Islam, or perhaps more plainly, a version of Islam, which emerges in, in colonial India, in British-controlled India, in the 
19th century and then spreads through Pakistan to the wider world. And we'll be talking about how that happens. Mm -hmm. But indeed, you know, first of all, what is Deobandism? So perhaps you could start us off by telling us what is Deobandism and how it differs from other versions of Islam. Before I get into what Deobandism is, I think it would be helpful to just start with what Deoband is. Uh, Deoband is first and foremost a place. Uh, it is a town um, of today about 100,000 people uh, north of Delhi. And uh, it happened to be a uh, town where in the mid 19th century, a number of uh, uh, prominent scholars um, among the ulama of North India, the ulama being the classically trained Islamic scholars, uh, uh, gathered and founded a madrasa or seminary called the Darululum Deoban. Darululum means uh, uh, house of learning. Uh, and this seminary was founded in 1866. Uh, it was primarily founded as a place to revive uh, classical Muslim scholarship on uh, theological and legal disciplines, right? The study of the Quran, especially the study of the Hadith. Uh, and at first- The, the Hadith being the, the body of Arabic traditions of what the Prophet Muhammad said and did. And, exactly, and some of his exactly. companions as well, their Exactly, said. precisely. So uh, the, the, the uh, scholars affiliated with this uh, seminary wanted to revive these classical disciplines of learning. Uh, none of them, I think, um, at the time would have identified uh, as even Deobandis uh, in the sense that we use the term now, let alone, um, I think, espousing something like a Deobandism. So that did not really come about until um, uh, later on in the, the, the very end of the 19th century and especially in the first two decades of the 20th century. And uh, Deobandism, broadly speaking, is uh, not just, as I've already mentioned, a, a, a kind of um, a, a, a school that, that uh, fosters uh, expertise in, in classical uh, Islamic law and theology, uh, but is particularly focused on reviving this kind of learning among the lay Muslim masses, right? um, meaning uh, non-ulama. Uh, people who uh, may not uh, study in a madrasa or a seminary, um, people who may only have the time to perhaps read a religious text now and then. And so in my book, I focus on uh, how these uh, Deobandi scholars for the early 20th century uh, attempted to uh, bring some of this uh, classical learning to the masses in accessible forms, right, that, that uh, did not uh, necessarily require someone to um, have all the legal and theological knowledge that, that a scholar would have, but who would basically get, get some of the, the, the rudimentary forms of this knowledge. Now, Deobandism is often discussed alongside another major Indo-Pakistani school of Muslim theology called Barelvism. Barelvism is named after its founder, a major, at the time, Indian Muslim thinker called Ahmad Reza Khan Barelvi, who lived between 1856 and 1921. 
So whereas Deobandism is named after the place where the first seminary was founded, Berelvism is named after the founder himself. And in many ways, the Deobandis evolved their, their doctrines and their theological positions through debate, discussion, and in some ways theological conflict with the Berelvis, who formed many very different opinions about what constitutes Islam and indeed what is legitimate Muslim practice, and particularly around questions of Sufism or more broadly what we might call popular Islam in India and Pakistan. So perhaps you could talk us through some of these theological debates and differences between the Diobandis and the Berelvis in order to allow us to get a better grasp on what Deobandism is ultimately about. In terms of, of being an ism, per se, uh, when, we, when we use the word Deobandism, uh, so we're talking about everything that I mentioned so far, but we're also talking about the extent to which the Deobandis have defined themselves against one of their kind of arch rivals in the Indian subcontinent, which is the, the Berelvis. Now, uh, this gets really to um, the, the heart of certain contestations over uh, the Prophet Muhammad and uh, the Sufi saints. Now, without getting into the weeds, the uh, Borelvis have long believed that the Deobandis uh, slight uh, uh, or disrespect the dignity of the Prophet Muhammad uh, with certain theological ideas that they uh, espouse. Among them, uh, ideas like uh, what they call imkanikizb, um, the possibility that uh, God could tell a lie, or nazir, um, the possibility of God creating um, a likeness of the Prophet Muhammad, essentially creating multiple uh, uh, identical prophets. Um, and the reason the Deobandis historically have, have defended these, what, what appears to be at first glance a kind of arcane theological notions, is because it helps them or it allows them to articulate a uh, a really um, kind of absolutist version of divine sovereignty. Um, they believe that there are no restrictions on uh, God's power and and uh, and His His omnipotence. Uh, and so, in order to say, for example, that uh, God uh, cannot tell a lie if He were if you wanted to tell a lie, or the idea that God could not create other prophets uh, after Muhammad uh, that you know were of equal stature, is essentially to say that God's power is limited. Now the Borelvis, to get back to them, uh, they believe that these these ideas were uh, anathema. <laughs> To the extent that they actually believed um, that the Deobandis were uh, treading uh, very closely towards unbelief. Uh, in particular, the founder of the, the Borelvi movement, Ahmed Reza Khan, uh, published a book in 1906 called Hussam al-Haramain, uh, in which he uh, very directly accused some of the prominent scholars of the Deoband movement of unbelief because of the kinds of things they were saying about the Prophet Muhammad. Now, briefly, I'll also add that uh, another aspect of how the Deobandis have uh, differentiated themselves from the Borelvis has to do with what the Deobandis have taught about Sufism and 
uh, Sufi sainthood. Now, like many Muslims of the 19th and early 20th century in South Asia, the Deobandis uh, uh, were identified as Sufis. Many of them were practicing Sufis. Uh, they particularly were affiliated with uh, two Sufi brotherhoods, the Chishtia and the Naqshbandiya. But they believed that certain practices that the masses were doing, uh, revering Sufi saints, especially at their shrines, uh, were theologically problematic and in fact jeopardized the uh, salvation or the, the, the possibility that, that these, these, uh, these lay Muslims would, would go to uh, heaven. They were deeply uh, invested in trying to correct what they saw as these uh, theological errors. And again, the Borelvis uh, believed that the Deobandis were sliding the dignity of the Sufi saints in, in making some of these arguments. So Deobandiism, in short, uh, has been defined principally in distinction from uh, Borelvism. Also, as an ism, they, they have uh, espoused certain ideas about uh, Sufism, um, which is Islamic mystical thought and practice, that have made this movement controversial. Uh, they have criticized uh, what people do at the shrines of Sufi saints, and many of their criticisms of, of these practices come from the theological and legal learning that they espouse. Yeah, it's worth saying here, isn't it, that this Sufism, as it's often called in English, for many Muslims for, let's say, a, a thousand years or something, you know, kind of 800 AD with the emergence of Sufism through to the 19th century, for many Muslims still today, this is just ordinary Islam. But what I sometimes call, let's say, a Catholic Islam, insofar mm -hmm. as it's an Islam that has saints, shrines, pilgrimages, festivals, and indeed music and many of these other elements that we might in Christianity associate with, with, with Catholic. And the sheer scale of many of these festivals in India and indeed the music and the fact that many Hindus went to them as well, perhaps for the music and the poetry or the feasting mm -hmm. or indeed for perhaps for religious reasons, that becomes something of a, of a, of a moral issue and a theological issue, doesn't it, for, for various, various Muslim scholars, including the founders of, of, of Deoband. Yes, it does. So what makes the Deobandis especially interesting in the history of Sufism is that they identified as Sufis, right? uh, almost uniformly. <laughs> They, in particular, followed uh, two, uh, well, multiple uh, Sufi brotherhoods, but two in particular, the Chishtia and the Naqshbandiya. Uh, the Chishtia, of course, are uh, particularly uh, important in the history of uh, Sufism in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, but, uh, but the, the, the Deobandis uh, found certain practices at Sufi saint shrines especially problematic, right? So this idea that uh, someone might go to a saint shrine and ask for a miracle from the saint, right? Or asks for some kind of favor. Uh, in fact, they, the Deobanis uh, didn't uh, dismiss the idea that a saint had that kind of power outright. What they said is that that power comes from God. Uh, that God may even temporarily grant that power to the saint. But what happens is that you have 
many of these kind of in the Deobandi view, un, untrained, unlettered masses coming to these Sufi saint shrines and asking for favors and ascribing these, these essentially divine powers to the saint, which is in Islam considered uh, an act of what is called shirk, basically associating uh, God's attributes and qualities with entities that are not God. So for the Deobanis, it's not that they just didn't like Sufi saints. In fact, they revere the saints. They believed that practices that had coalesced around saint shrines had become sources of uh, in what I call in my book uh, normative disorder, which is to say threats to uh, uh, core tenets of Islamic law and theology. So in a, in a sense, the, they're opposing popular religiosity in some ways, aren't they? These these elements that ordinary people who are non-literate, perhaps, and certainly not literate in Arabic and unable to read the Quran. And there's this fear that, that these popular practices that have grown around the burial places, the mausoleums, the shrines of these Sufi holy men we're calling saints, are actually leading people away from the Sirat al-Mustaqim, the straight mm -hmm. path of Islam. Yes. And in order to bring ordinary Muslims across India and then more, more broadly back to this straight path, so to speak, of Islam, that's the, their method of encouraging the study of the scripture and the study of the, not only the Quran, but the sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad, the Hadith, and making that knowledge available to, to a wider population. <laughs> This is in some ways why they become teachers and founders of a whole series of seminaries, isn't it? Starting, as you Absolutely. said, with the one founded in 1866 in the town of Deoband. Yes, yeah, so for the Deobandis, uh, the, the, the best thing that a Muslim can do to ensure uh, his or her salvation in the next life is to go to a madrasa. And, and you, you learn uh, the, the basic tenets of Islamic law and theology. Uh, the second best thing that one can do is to read Deobandi texts and to learn the basics of Islamic law and theology, uh, the basics of the Quran, the Hadith, um, in a form that uh, is is uh, uh, equips middle class Muslims in you know the kind of burgeoning cities of, of North India to be able to um, uh, uh, make sense of things like Sufism in their own terms, right? And to know what are the theological dangers and uh, uh, that you know may uh, kind of surround a Sufi saint shrine. And we say middle class in the sense here, I guess, because these are, are more urban Muslims who are moving from from the countryside to the yes. towns of India, mm -hmm. acquiring education to a greater or lesser degree, and not least perhaps acquiring education in Urdu, this really major South Asian language that mm -hmm. comes into its own in the period of, of, of Deoband's rise and in many ways through the Deobandis becomes a language of religious instruction it as does. well. It and, does. and Deoband Madrasa is very interesting in this way, isn't it, in terms of it's focused upon Arabic, but it actually becomes a big promoter of the Urdu language, the one of the largest languages of the Indian subcontinent, and promoting Urdu as a language of religious instruction, and indeed as a an Islamic language, a religious language. Yes. So many of the the commentaries that Deobani scholars have written on the Quran or the Hadith are written in Arabic. Uh, they are also often translated into Urdu. Some of them are written uh, initially in Urdu. 
but those texts were written primarily for other scholars. The texts that the Deobanis have written for the lay people, right, the non-scholars, are almost entirely written in Urdu. And so you're absolutely right that, that uh, in part through uh, the uh, texts that Deobani scholars uh, wrote for uh, a, a mass readership, uh, Urdu became a prominent language of religious instruction. And that becomes an element of what Deoband, the original Darul Ulum, as it's called, mm -hmm. the original House of Religious Sciences, not very elegant mm -hmm. translation, but I suppose literal translation, the original Madrasa in Deoband, and then the many others that are founded. Urdu becomes one of the languages that are taught there, along with Arabic. But can you take us back through the early history of Deoband and then tell us how it, how it expands from that first Madrasa, that first Darul Ulum that's founded in 1866? And how that original setting, North India, the region of Delhi, it's around 150 kilometers north of Delhi, isn't it? And how that context shapes the, the theological development, as well as perhaps the institutional development of Deobandi thought and indeed uh, Deobandi madrasa networks, as we might call them. <laughs> The Darulum Deoban was founded uh, in the aftermath of a failed uprising against uh, British rule uh, in, in 1857. And in the aftermath of 1857, uh, many Muslims of North India retreated essentially from cities like Delhi uh, into smaller towns, uh, among them uh, being Deoband. And so many of the prominent Deobani scholars come from uh, small towns in and around Deoban, like Gango, uh, like Tanabhavan, like Saharanpur, uh, where the, these scholars felt that they could participate in this revival of classical Islamic learning uh, at a distance from imperial power. Right? Uh, you, I, I think it's also important to understand how devastating 1857 was for India's Muslims. Uh, the response by the British to this uprising was very brutal. And so there's a kind of context in which I think the, the, the Muslims of North India felt politically chastised. Right? They felt politically powerless. The, the Mughal Empire had been uh, in decline, politically speaking, for some time. It wasn't until uh, with, the, the, with the exile of the last Mughal emperor and the uprising of 1857 where the, that uh, decline was felt most palpably. Uh, but in the wake of 1857, uh, scholars associated with the Deoband movement uh, really retreated to the, these, these, these uh, towns and uh, attempted to uh, uh, revive, uh, to, to, to counter the, the decline um, of uh, uh, Muslim power through their scholarship. Uh, it's not until the 20th century that you get a kind of proliferation of Deobandi seminaries. Uh, and even into the early 20th century, for example, there, uh, there was a prominent Deobandi madrasa founded in Gujarat in a place called Dabal in the 1920s. It's really not until around partition and in the immediate aftermath of the founding of Pakistan that you have uh, uh, multiple prominent Deobandi seminaries uh, being formed. Um, the Darulum Karachi, for example. 
I think that's one of the really interesting, important things about Dobandi Islam, and in in so far as it emerges, as you said, a, pretty much a decade after 1858, mm -hmm. which has seen the final end of the Mughal Empire, when the British have exiled the last Mughal emperor to to Rangoon in in what's now Myanmar, and Delhi, which had been the capital of the Mughal Empire pretty much for a few hundred years, has been pretty much devastated by, mm -hmm. by, by the war to re-seize the, the, the city. The British have taken control of the, of the Great Friday Mosque, of the, the Red Fort, the Mughal Imperial Palace. Refugees have fled from the city, from mm -hmm. Delhi, left, right and centre. And Muslim intellectuals, Muslim scholars, religious figures across India are facing a situation that is pretty much new to, the, to Muslims in India for the last 700 years which is that we are no longer the ruling class. And one of the ways in which we might think about Deoband is that it's a way within which South Asian Muslims began to think about how to practice as Muslims in a situation when Muslims no longer control the political reins of power and in which Sharia in particular mm -hmm. is no longer has a place or no longer has an evident place within the state because the rulers are no longer Muslim. Yeah, so the the ability to uh, adjudicate Islamic law, to to, to practice Islamic law um, on the at the level of the state, of course, was uh, virtually non-existent after eighteen fifty seven. Uh, the uh, practice of Islamic law transformed to the extent that uh, much of the the legal scholarship. Um, focused on uh, issuing fatwas to Muslim and as individuals, right? And um, a, as a, a fatwa is like a legal opinion, isn't it, exactly. in a sense? It doesn't exactly. necessarily have legal advice. weight, but it's an opinion of what is lawful and what's not. Exactly, yes. So one way we might think about what, what Deobandi ulama, that's to say the, the, the learned specialists of these technical disciplines of, of making Islamic law, making... Islamic jurisprudence out of the the core scriptural sources of the Quran and the Hadith of what the Prophet Muhammad said and did they're trying to bring that that specialist erudite scriptural Arabic based knowledge to a wider population that as we've said that Deobandi scholars the the graduates from the seminary feel that ordinary people are being led astray from true Islam by popular devotional ritual carnival practices etc and one of the ways that they do that is in 1892 they found what they what's called a Dar al-Ifta uh, uh, so to speak a house of legal opinions a house of legal rulings through which their people can write in use the new postal service across India and use kind of a stamp these new communication technologies in a way and say is is this what I'm doing legal? Is it legal Islamic and under Islamic law yes. to eat this, yes. to associate with this person, to dress this way, to perhaps wear an English bowler hat or whatever else it might be? So, broadly speaking, there were two ways in which Deobandis attempted to bring this classical Islamic learning to the masses. Uh, one of them was what you just mentioned, which was the the uh, issuing of fatwas, uh, non-binding Islamic legal opinions. 
And, and so again, as, as you just mentioned, people would you know, write to the ulama either at Deoband or sometimes they may consult with their local ulama in, in their village or town uh, to be able to get feedback on questions that they may have, right? Um, pertaining to not just kind of the basics of Islamic belief and practice, uh, but that may have to do with, for example, how to uh, properly visit a Sufi saint shrine, right? Or how to uh, properly celebrate uh, the Prophet Muhammad's birthday. Um, just to give a, a couple of examples of particularly uh, controversial practices from the period. The second way in which Deobani's attempted to bring this learning to the masses was through publishing uh, texts for the non-ulama, for the lay Muslims in Urdu. Uh, by far the most prominent of these texts was the Bahishti Zevar, um, the Heavenly Ornaments, published by Ashraf Ali Tanvi in 1905. Uh, this is, by some accounts, the most widely published, or one of the most widely published books um, in South Asian uh, history. Uh, it's it's gone through countless editions. It's been translated into many many languages. It's read still read around the world, uh, and it was written for women primarily. Now, uh, Tanvi and, and himself said that that uh, anyone can gain knowledge from reading the Bahishti Zevar. And he, in fact, he, he, he wrote a follow-up to the book specifically for men. Uh, but his, his concern was for lay Muslim women to get a kind of modicum of religious knowledge that would allow them to lead pious lives uh, and even to get a, a, a kind of rudimentary level of literacy. Um, in Bahishti Zevar, he talks about for example, uh, books that a pious Muslim woman should read and books that a pious Muslim woman should not read, right? And some of the more popular novels of the time were in the latter category, right? Uh, and so the, the, the Deobandis, I think, were, they were deeply conservative, deeply pious. They, they really wanted to uh, foster uh, individual piety in, in, in the everyday lives of Muslims, and they did this primarily through uh, the publication and circulation of these texts in Urdu for lay Muslims. So there were these, in a sense, innovative communication or teaching or pedagogical strategies that the Deoband is following, isn't it? As, as you've said, through the use of print, which doesn't, Muslims broadly know in the world are printing really until the 1820s and, mm -hmm. and not in any significant number till, till the 1860s, effectively, when Deoband is found. So they're really kind of taking on these, these new techniques, these new strategies. And some of those are, as I've said, in a sense, technological and communicational, but others are, are organizational. And particularly in the 1920s then, we have the, the foundation of, of an organization called the Tetabliki Jama'at, founded mm -hmm. in, in 1927 in, in Delhi, as we've said, near to, near to the town of Deoband itself. And that name, Tabliki Jama'at, is sort of the, the, the kind of clue is in the title, so to speak, isn't it? It literally means a propagational society or mm -hmm. plainly put a missionary society and this is a kind of a new organizational form in its own right isn't it through through which Dobandi teachings in some form get spread 
through ultimately to, to, to the wider world. So perhaps could you tell us about the, the evolution of this new missionary society, the Tablik al-Jama'at, and, uh, and how it relates to Deobandi teaching and indeed how it spreads to the wider world beyond the Indian subcontinent? Yeah, so in my book, I argued that the founding of the Tablighi Jamaat was essentially an extension of the reformist project that the Deobanis were already attempting to do through the publication of these texts. Now, in order to understand the founding of this uh, new movement, I think it's important to understand the ambivalence that the Deobanis felt about print itself. Uh, the Deobanis used print, they utilized print to uh, spread and propagate their reformist message, but at almost every turn, as I discuss in my book, they uh, believed that lay Muslims should consult the ulama directly, right? Living, breathing ulama, right? You, you, if you have a question about something that you you read about in one of these texts, you should go to uh, the one of the uh, ulama in your village or town. Uh, don't try to figure it out on your own, right? That uh, for lay Muslims is where you start to uh, get into the realm of you know potential uh, unbelief. So the Tablighi Jamaat uh, was founded by a Deobani scholar by the name of Muhammad Ilyas in the late 20s. And Ilyas was also suspicious, in some sense, of the ability of print alone to uh, successfully re re uh, reform and revive uh, Muslim, uh, lay, the lay Muslim masses. And uh, so Ilyas uh, founded this, this movement called the Tablighi Jamaat um, as an effort to try to uh, bring uh, Deobandi reformist ideas uh, to uh, lay Muslims. And what he did was kind of innovate this idea that uh, small groups of Muslims would go around from you know, within their village or town or maybe from you know, one town to the next and quite literally call for people to join them uh, in uh, making themselves more pious, but also in 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 uh, urging other Muslims to become more pious, they would do this, for example, in in things like uh, making sure that lay Muslims could uh, recite the the Shahada, the Testament of Faith, properly. Uh, they would do this in ways of you know, the, like making sure that that lay Muslims uh, understood core uh, aspects of belief and practice. But, uh, like other Deobandis, Ilyas believed that uh, Muslims should not inquire too far right, into certain ideas without consulting the ulama. And so the Tablighi Jamaat emerged out of a kind of ambivalence within Deobani thought about uh, how independent lay Muslims can be or should be from the ulama themselves. Now, eventually, the Tablighi Jamaat became uh, completely separate from Deobani thought. In effect, uh, one can participate in the Tablighi Jamaat without being a quote-unquote Deobandi, right? Uh, but 
as a kind of engine for spreading Deobandi belief, Deobandi uh, uh, approaches to reform and revival, uh, the Tablighi Jamaat has been really one of, if not the preeminent uh, ways in which Deobandi thought has spread across the globe. That's right. And we're using this term with reform a lot, aren't we? Because in many ways, the, the 19th, the 20th, indeed the 21st century is the, is the great age of Islamic reformation. There are many of these different reform movements going on around the world. And Deobandism and ultimately then the, the Tablighi Jamaat becomes one of the, the most, perhaps it's sometimes been said that the Tablighi Jamaat never has numbers, of course, of reliable statistics, but perhaps the, the, the largest uh, Muslim, certainly missionary movement, but maybe even lay organization in the world. And this happens then, doesn't it, from 1927 onwards, but then particularly after the foundation of Pakistan in 1947, and although Deoband itself and the original place where the Tabligh Jamaat had been founded uh, in, in Delhi, uh, both in what becomes after 1947 the Republic of India, in Pakistan, founded as we've said in 1947, that becomes a major place and the second major centre in the, the railway town of Raywin becomes another major centre for the Tabligh Jamaat. And the Tabligh Jamaat then starts its, its movement out of India, first to Saudi Arabia through, through the Hajj pilgrimage, and then to the wider world through, through Europe in the, the 1950s, um, indeed founding a, a, a Darul Uloom in a madrasa in Shiite Iran in 1971, in Zahedan, in South Africa in the early 1970s. You've talked about a great deal in your book. And then in Britain, and in 1980, the, the Dar in Dewsbury, in the northern British town of Dewsbury, becomes what's, what is probably the, the main tip Tabligh Jamaat centre in the Western world and certainly in, in Europe. And this takes us then to perhaps into the, the 1980s. And mm -hmm. as we said, by, by this time, Pakistan has been in existence for three or four decades, and we see a large, much larger number of, of, of madrasas affiliated to Deoband in the thousands, perhaps even 10,000 or more, perhaps even in the tens of thousands emerging in Pakistan. And insofar as ordinary people have a sense of what Deoband is, it might well be through news reports about the Taliban movement in, yes. in, in Afghanistan and increasingly in Pakistan. And the, the Taliban, the Pakistan and the Afghan Taliban have a relationship, but a complex and often mistaken relationship with, with Deoband and indeed with Deobandism. So perhaps could you talk us about through, through that relationship of how Deoband moves through Pakistan and indeed into Afghanistan and becomes associated with the Taliban? So I, I think, first of all, it, it's important for us not to uh, conflate the Taliban with the larger Deoband movement. The Taliban is just one aspect of a larger uh, historical phenomenon. Um, and the Taliban did, in, in fact, uh, emerge out of Deobani institutions, uh, one in particular called the Darul Ulum Haqqaniya, uh, which was actually founded right after partition in 1947 by a Deobani scholar, Abdul Haq Akorvi, um, in northwest Pakistan. 
Um, and uh, it wasn't until the 1980s when his son, Samuel Haq, um, took over uh, the madrasa and where a number of prominent Taliban uh, uh, leaders, including Mullah Omar, um, who actually uh, led the Islamic uh, Emirate of, of Afghanistan uh, from, I think, 1996 until his death. Uh, so he also studied at the Darul Ulum Haqqaniya. And it is mostly through this connection between uh, the, the, the rise of the Taliban and this one particular Deobani Madrasa that uh, kind of pundits and policy analysts and, and journalists and others have, uh, uh, I think, uh, seen a, a relationship between uh, the Deobanis and the Taliban. Because it's one of the ironies in a sense, isn't it, with this evolution of multiple strands, spin-offs, versions, mm -hmm. perhaps competing internal conflicts of Deobandism, that Deoband originally emerges and found is founded in a situation to enable Muslims to operate in the absence of a state ruled by Muslims. And yet with the Taliban, a certain version of Deobandism, at least as you've explained, not representative of the whole, but nonetheless comes to found an Islamic state. So this is actually a very different it's type ironic. of project that, than actually Deobandism was found to cope with, the, the absence of Muslim political power. This is an important point. It is, in fact, deeply ironic that uh, uh, one of the kind of articulations of an idea of an Islamic state that, that you know, uh, comes out of the late uh, 20th century uh, is modeled around this kind of Deobandi reform and revival project. Uh, and it's ironic because, as you, as you mentioned, in the aftermath of 1857, after we discussed earlier, the Deobandis, for the most part, had no interest or aspirations in trying to found an Islamic state. Their main goal, as we've said, was to re-engage lay Muslims in uh, better understanding uh, Islamic belief and practice and and fostering everyday Islamic piety. Now the Taliban of course is doing that too uh, but the Taliban I think also had to uh, uh, think about how to form an Islamic state uh, in terms that I think drew from uh, fundamentals of Islamist thought far more than they did from Deobani thought per se. So taking different strands then perhaps from ideas coming out of, of Egypt and mm -hmm. indeed out of colonial India as well, but with yes. a figure like Abu Ala Maududi, who mm -hmm. a major Islamist thinker, a political Islamic thinker, but but not a Deobandi thinker. Precisely. In fact, uh, Maududi uh, was a sharp critic of the Deobandis and vice versa. <laughs> So over the last half an hour or so, we've, we've taken quite a journey, haven't we, from 1866 when the Darul Ulum, the, the, the House of Religious Sciences, is founded in this really provincial town um, in North India, 150 kilometers away from a capital city that is no longer a capital, that is you know, pretty much the backwaters of a backwater now. And yet we've seen over the course of the 20th century, through the foundation of this major missionary society, the Tablika Jama'at, and then through the 
creation of the Taliban Emirate in Afghanistan, which rules from 1996 to 2001, the Dobandism in its different and, as we said, competing forms has actually spread from this very obscure and provincial beginnings to the wider world. So perhaps could you reflect for us on what do you think the history of Deobandism tells us about the role of South Asia, of the Indian subcontinent, in contemporary global Islam? So I, I think one thing that, that the history of the Deoband movement can tell us about the role of South Asia in global Islam uh, is the extent to which uh, Muslims migrated globally out of South Asia in uh, British imperial networks, right? So in my book, I focus in particular on the migration of Muslims to and, to and from and between South Asia and South Africa. And this actually gets back to the question we started with, which was, uh, what is Deobandism, right? So in the 1920s, when the first Deobandi scholars kind of set up shop in South Africa to give religious advice to lay Muslims there, they didn't necessarily identify as Deobandis. They were acting, first and foremost, as ulama. And that's actually how the Deobandis have always identified themselves, right? They are, they are ulama, first and foremost. Uh, and secondarily, they happen to espouse a, a kind of Deobandi approach to questions of belief and practice. Um, and it's not until the, the 1970s where you get the first uh, uh, and especially the, the early 80s, where you get the first Darlulums in South Africa. And the reason for that is that up until that point, uh, if a Muslim in South Africa, for example, wanted to uh, become a Deobani scholar, he would, uh, in most instances, travel back to the subcontinent. He might go to uh, Deoband itself, he might go to Karachi, he might go to uh, any number of other uh, sites where Deobani seminaries had been founded. Uh, then, after uh, becoming an alum, uh, one of the ulama, he would go back to South Africa and function as uh, uh, one of the ulama. Um, and and so I, I, I think that the movement back and forth of, of, uh, of Muslims and lay Muslims and scholars between South Asia and South Africa is uh, a, uh, I think a testament to the kind of uh, uh, networks of and, and the circulation of ideas and people and institutions um, that uh, emerged uh, in the wake of the British Empire. I think that's so helpful to, to give us a recognition of just how important the Indian subcontinent is as the, as the home to the world's largest community of Muslims, but also as we've seen as the home to some of the most important institutional as well as missionary movements that have emerged mm -hmm. in modern Islamic history. Brennan Ingram, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Da 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 da